Nasuch. This afternoon we return to the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. As I've mentioned before, the aspiration here, what we're seeking to do, is to view the space of the mind, and everything that comes up in it, emotions, desires, everything, from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. As all of these appearances arise in the substrate, that's what we're seeking to do. We're doing, seeking to do our best approximation of that perspective, which raises the question, can you actually experience the substrate consciousness before you've achieved shamatha? The answer is unequivocally yes, that's for sure. One way to do it, the easiest way to get a clear experience, not complete experience, but nevertheless an authentic experience of the substrate consciousness is to enter into a lucid dream, to become lucid in a dream, and then very deliberately stop. If you had a lucid dream, you might try this, it's interesting. Be in the midst of a dream and make sure it's lucid. So there you are, cruising along with the dream and your lucidity, and then very deliberately just stop, totally. Don't engage with anything. You can close your eyes, don't move, don't think, don't do anything. Stop. Within a matter of seconds, the whole dreamscape will vanish. And then you can open your eyes if you like, if you still have eyes, and all you will experience will be the substrate, and if you invert your awareness, you're experiencing substrate consciousness. You're deep asleep and you're lucid. So that's the easiest access. If you're lucid, then it's really easy to make the dream dissolve and just to make sure you don't lose your lucidity. So you take your lucidity from the dream and just drop it right down into substrate consciousness. Now, that's not the same as achieving shamatha. You don't have even remotely the degree of clarity or vividness there in your experience of substrate consciousness that you do after having achieved shamatha. But nevertheless, you are experiencing substrate consciousness. Oh, yeah. But what about in the waking state? In the next session, do we have any experience of the substrate consciousness, or is that something comes much, much later, maybe when you achieve shamatha only? I think the answer depends in part on semantics, that is simply how we wish to use words, uh, but it may be a little bit more meaningful than that. So let's take a couple of parallels to try to answer this in the most meaningful fashion. Not then necessarily the correct fashion, but meaningful, useful. And that is when one first gains insight into emptiness, absence of inherent nature of phenomena. When that first happens, some, some genuine insight. In that moment, have you become an Arya? Anybody know? Anybody know? You don't know or you're saying no? <laughs> you're guessing correctly. Yes. No, you're not an Arya. I mean, it's conceivable. Some people with incredibly little dust on their eyes, their first glimpse may be total penetration, non-conceptual, unmediated, totally non-dual, full realization of emptiness. Could happen. But for almost everybody, no, that's what the, where the five paths come in. You get some insight. And then the insight is authentic, but it's veiled. It's veiled by concepts, ideas. It's still a quasi, it's a conceptual realization. It is a realization, and not just think, thinking about it, but it's veiled by concepts. And then as you go deeper, 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 the veils of conceptualization thin and thin and thin until you gain that 
unmediated, non-conceptual, direct realization, then you're an Arya. So there's one in that analogy. How about when you receive pointing out instructions from a consummate Dzogchen master, gives you the mind transmission, the pointing out instructions for Ritpa, and you really get the taste. Really, you, you see your own face, and you gain some genuine insight into Rikpa. Are you at that moment a Vidyadara? No, that's pretty clear. Again, maybe, could be, could, it's conceivable. In most cases, uh-uh. That's why you keep on practicing, 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 sustaining that awareness, right? So, you have awareness of Rikpa, but again, it's veiled. It's veiled. And you sustain... And you sustain the awareness and slowly you just kind of burn through those veils like fog lifting because of just being burned through by the sun. So if those two are good analogies, then perhaps it's equally meaningful to say that even in relatively early phases of settling the mind in its natural state, you are viewing the mind from the perspective of substrate consciousness. You are viewing the substrate but both the substrate itself is veiled by your conceptual overlays and your experience of substrate consciousness is also veiled by conceptual precognitive structuring of awareness, concepts, and so forth. But still, perhaps it's useful to say, yes, you're getting the taste. Now, quiz time. You'll recall, of course, that there are the three qualities, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Among those three, what is the first one in terms of sequence that is most meaningful, most effective to strive for? There's only one right answer. Non-conceptuality. That is correct. You want bliss, you're just going to be frustrated. I mean, it might come up, but not on, on demand. Right? So if you just want bliss, that's like, I don't know, I'd like to be a all-star baseball player. Okay, well, lots of luck with that, you know. If you want bliss or luminosity, well, you might get that, but if you just go for it, you just get stressed out. It'll be too high, high tension, too much effort. You won't be able to stabilize it. So that's not a good one. But insofar as you're able, to the best of your ability, as you're viewing concepts, images, thoughts, and so forth, view them from a non-conceptual awareness. So there it is, a non-conceptual awareness of thoughts, of images, memories, and so forth. Your perception of them is non-conceptual, and they are arising as images, thoughts, mental chit-chat, and so forth and so on. But you're seeking to view them from a non-conceptual perspective, which means you don't become part of the dialogue. You're not a conversation partner. Because as soon as you are, you're talking back and forth with your mind, then you're locked right into coarse mind, dualistic mind, conceptual mind. Then you're not settling the mind as natural state, you're splashing around on the surface. So as much as you possibly can, you, re re you release all concepts, all grasping, you view whatever's arising in the space of the mind from a perceptual perspective, a non-discursive, non-conceptual perspective. Out of that non-conceptuality, out of that relaxation and stability, that inner stillness, there will gradually arise greater clarity. And out of that greater clarity, there will arise bliss. Now, along the course of settling the mind in its natural state, as you move along in the nine stages, in a rather unpredictable way, some people, on occasion, will experience these spikes of bliss coming up, sometimes somatically, sometimes psychologically. Some people will experience spikes of extraordinary clarity. The mind just feels like the wattage just went from a 100 watts to a 1,000 watts. So suddenly, whoa, wow! That's what it's like to have a bright mind, right? 
you know, and then it passes, you know. And then, on occasion, some people were cruising along, and then suddenly they'll experience that sense of just profound subjective stillness, quiet, non-conceptuality, spaciousness, and then it passes. And so, like breaking in the clouds, there will come these shafts of light, these rays, so to speak, from the substrate consciousness, sometimes manifesting a ray of bliss, sometimes luminosity, sometimes non-conceptuality. Where are they coming from? They're not coming from the object. They're not coming out of neurons. Neurons don't give rise to bliss. They give rise to chemicals, mass and energy. That's all neurons give rise to, mass and energy. The emergent properties of all physical phenomena are physical phenomena. Therefore, they're measurable. Bliss is not measurable. Luminosity is not measurable. Non-conceptuality is not measurable by the instruments of technology. But it sure is measurable with the mind, with awareness. So, there's only one place, one likely candidate for the origin of these spikes, these eruptions, these outflows of bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality, and of course that's the substrate consciousness. And so you're getting glimmerings, glimmerings. And then like that hound dog that has the, the rag put before its nose, then you trace it back to its source, right? You pick, up, pick out that bliss and then say, follow your bliss, Joseph Campbell, right? Follow the bliss, where did it come from? Don't go out. Go in. If you happen to see a really beautiful woman or a handsome man at the same time, don't go there. Come back in here. That's where the bliss actually is. Right? So, that's a little bit of that. So, I would suggest that yes, why not? I think it's meaningful to say that we can ex gain some experience, veiled but nevertheless authentic, experience of substrate consciousness and substrate along the path. It's not just something to wait for. So there's one point. I only want to make two points before we jump in. Here's the second one. As you well know, there's core instructions on how to attend to the space of the mind and its contents. And that is maintaining mindfulness in what mode? What are the core instructions that you must not forget? And if you have, you have totally blown it. How do you maintain your mindfulness? That's exactly right. Yeah. Without distraction, and without grasping. That's it. If you don't memorize that, then you, you're not getting the practice. And if you've got, if you've really understood that, you've got the core of the practice right in the palm of your hand. So without distraction, that's pretty straightforward. You're not carried away. Without grasping, we know that's the whole gradient. It's much more subtle. But does it mean that simply by not grasping onto phenomena of the mind, not grasping onto, let's say, the inherent existence of things like your body or an iPhone. The inherent existence of feelings, pleasure, pain, that's very easy to grasp onto. Is it the case that simply by not reifying, that is, grasping onto the true existence, the inherent existence of mental phenomena, feelings, emotions, thoughts, images, physical phenomena, your body, external objects, and so forth, is it the case that simply by stopping the grasping onto them, stopping the reification of them, that you have realized their true nature? True or false? If you've just stopped grasping, does that mean that you've now realized their actual nature? You're right, yeah. No. No. And now that you've given the right answer, you have to pay a penalty. And the penalty is you have to listen to a really corny joke. 
You don't have to laugh. That's not required, but you have to listen to it. Okay. It's one of my favorite really corny jokes. And it's very relevant to this. And it's literally a corny joke. Because it's about a little boy who was raised on a farm in the Midwest. It was a corn farm. You know, standard, more like an Ohio, like that. He was raised, but he had a little boy named Johnny. And he had a very, very unusual form of psychosis. Tragic, really. He actually thought he was a kernel of corn, a little grain of corn. Very rare disease. Cornophobia, something like that, I can't remember. But very, very rare. But he was extremely troubled, thinking with a little corn, a grain of, grain of or a kernel of corn. His parents did, were very, very distraught, didn't know what to do with their child, who thought he was a piece of corn. So they sent him off to a mental asylum, received a lot of psychiatric care, maybe some electric shock therapy that could have helped. And finally, he was released after, you know, very extensive therapy. Sent home. Doctor said, your child's okay now. Parents weren't really sure, you know, how much can you trust the psychiatrist? But, uh, boy came home. He seemed okay. But the first thing they came, when he came home, the parents asked him, Johnny, do you, um, do you still think you're a kernel of corn? And well, Johnny said, no, 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 I don't, I don't think that any longer. Parents were kind of relieved. But they watched him because they were still quite anxious. They didn't want a you know, psychotic boy in their hands. So the days went by, and then one day, little Johnny came running in from outside, slammed the door behind him. He's trembling. He's freaking out. And the mother looked at him and says, Oh, no, he's afraid. Oh, he's gone back to his psychosis. And she says, Johnny, what's, what's, what's wrong? Why are you so terrified? You don't think you're a kernel of corn, do you? And he said, No, Mom, but those chickens out there don't know that. Some of you wanted to laugh, thank you. Okay. So the moral of the story is little Johnny had stopped thinking he was a kernel of corn, but he hadn't realized that he wasn't a kernel of corn. So when he saw the chickens, he freaked out. Okay. So simply stopping thinking something doesn't mean that you know it's not true. Simply stopping the reification, no longer grasping onto the inherent existence of phenomena, doesn't mean that you realized that emptiness of inherent nature. So, if you just get general anesthesia, the reification of phenomena goes dormant. You're not reifying anything. You're not aware of anything. You're wiped out. You're knocked out. But then when you come out of the anesthesia, then of course the grasping is right there again. Likewise, when you go into shamatha, you achieve shamatha, you settle in the substrate consciousness. Your mental afflictions pertaining to the desire realm have gone dormant. They're not there. They're nowhere to be found. They've all, they're all hibernating. But as soon as you come out of shamatha, then they're ready to wake up and activate again. So merely not grasping is a step in the right direction, but it's not sufficient. Merely not grasping. And that is why, for example, in dream yoga, once you become lucid, then you start really running experiments to see these phenomena that appear as if they're from their own side, do they in fact exist that way or not? And you start investigating and really transforming the dream. And likewise, simply ceasing the grasping and settling the mind in this natural state. You may have, as Lerab Lingba says in his commentary, you may have, when you come out of samadhi, you may have an experience of, of the forms around you being empty. Empty. You have, may have that experience, but you haven't realized it. It's just that that tendency, that old habit of reification, has gone a bit dormant.
That's why shamatha is not sufficient. You need to, on shamatha, then build vipassana. And that means activating the mind once again and then really probing into the nature of the phenomena. Both probing into the nature of your own mind as well as all appearing phenomena to see for yourself through your own experience, is there really someone in here? That sense of I am, I am the agent, I am the observer, may go dormant. Just like little Johnny, for a while, didn't think that he was a kernel of corn without having realized that he wasn't a kernel of corn. He just stopped thinking that. And then there was a trigger, and lo and behold, his dormant sense, I am a kernel of corn, was fired up again, and there he was, freaking out as usual. And so we can let our sense of I am the agent, I am the observer, something inherently in here, my mind inherently in here, that can go dormant. But then all it needs is a catalyst, and it will be aroused again, and you're in the same soup as you ever were. So that's a relationship between shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha makes these mental afflictions go relatively dormant. Vipassana pulls them out of the hole and then cuts off their head. So they can't squawk anymore. So that's why you have shamatha vipassana. So, Find a comfortable position and settle the mind in its natural state. As preliminary practices, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, as you've done before.
in settling your awareness in this mode of mindfulness free of distraction and free of grasping. With your eyes open, bring the full force of mindfulness to the visual field in the scene left to be just the scene. Observe these appearances arising without grasping, without reifying them as existing from their own side. Just be present, non-conceptually, with whatever is arising in this space of vision and observe its nature. your eyes close and direct the full force of mindfulness to the auditory field in the herd. Let there be just the herd. Practice as before. As with vision you will see, there is no inside or outside. There are simply appearances arising in the auditory field. All arising in the same space, the substrate. Redirect this mindfulness now to the tactile field, to whatever sensations arise within it. Once again, no inside or outside, just tactile events arising in space.
Now let your eyes be at least partially open, but your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you, without attending to any visual object. And turn your attention now to whatever arises to your awareness that does not come to you by way of any of the five physical senses such as discursive thoughts and mental images, but not confined to those. And as you direct your attention in this way to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, once again you will find there is no inside or outside. None of these appearances arise inside your head or outside your head. The sensations of the head arise in the tactile field, either inside nor outside. Your experience of the head arises in the substrate, not vice versa. Observe the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, without distraction, without grasping. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Voilà ça. So you certainly noted by now in our collective time together each day, we have very little in the way of ritual. I do a fair amount of ritual each day, but privately. When I'm here, I do very little ritual. Bowing, which I think is very meaningful. The Buddha and our representatives of Sangha especially. Bowing to all of you, to your Buddha nature. And then, I guess not everybody knows why I snap my fingers every time I get up here. Some of you may be thinking, I've just forgotten something. <laughs> and I'm consistently forgetful every single time. Oh, and then, every single time must be. And that's not it. So, the, it's a tradition I learned a long time ago and I found it meaningful. Especially when you, this is called a Dharma throne. When you're teaching Dharma, the place you're sitting is called Dharma throne. Throne, very elegant term in reverence to the Dharma, not the person teaching it. Mm. And the snapping of the finger is a reminder for the person speaking or who is about to speak of the reality of impermanence and one's own mortality. So when you get on the Dharma throne as if you're about to die. This is your last Dharma talk. So whether people like it or they don't like it, they like you, they don't like you, they whatever they think, you're going to be dead soon. So really, what does it matter? Who cares whether you like a dead person? I mean, a dead. So, just bearing that notion, I like to think of it as dead men talking. Right? That really captures it for me. But to be teaching Dharma as you're staring death in the face, it's very helpful, very relaxing. Very really, It's not morbid at all. I don't feel morbid at all. I don't want to die particularly until this body's completely used up and smells bad. Throw it away. But until then, I'm happy to live a long life. But to be gazing right at death as you teach is very helpful. Because it's, pardon the word, it cuts through all the bullshit from the side of the speaker. Not all of it, but it's certainly helpful. And you recognize that all that really counts is the quality and the authenticity of the teaching themselves. So, as I try to maintain that awareness, I encourage you to do the same thing. There's a marvelous text, classic text, practice in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Traces back to a teacher called the Seven Point Mind Training. And he starts out with the emphasis on the four thoughts that turn the mind, developing authentic motivation, right intention, what the Buddha called. Then goes directly to one verse, one line, it's left out of later versions. Too bad. It's really an important verse. In Tibetan, Demba Tobne Samwat Den. Right after developing authentic motivation. Then, Demba Tobne Samwat Den. Having achieved stability, then let the mystery be revealed. Having achieved stability refers to shamatha. Achieve shamatha. And then let the mystery, namely the mystery of the mind, the nature of mind, be revealed. Just that one line. Demba Tobne Samwat Den. Achieve having achieved stability, shamatha. Then go for vipassana. Then he goes right into teachings on nature of mind, emptiness. Brilliant, very concise, just like pounding nails. Boom, boom, boom. Goes right into nature of mind, investigating, realizing emptiness. Then when he's finished of the formal meditative practice, or the instructions on the meditative practice, and you're coming to the post-meditative experience, then he says, 
now emerging from whatever insight or realization you have of emptiness, then in between sessions, tunsam gyume jā, in between sessions, behave as an illusory being, as, you, as if you are a holographic image, a ghost, a mirage. So think of yourself as just like, no one's really here. It's totally empty appearance. It's like a holographic image. And just navigate through life. All of your engagement with other people, the environment, and so forth, as if you're just an illusion, a figment of somebody's imagination. Dead man talking. Very helpful. And then go from there to bodhicitta. I think it's a brilliant strategy. It's called the strategy for those of sharp faculties. Wisdom first. Not to be said for that. So there we are. But that's why I snap my fingers. Hola so. So at which level of stability you need to achieve before one could start integrating Vipassana uh, meditation into shamatha? Stage one. <laughs> Stage one. No, life is short. Life is short. I remember Gishing on Taige. You know, when he was teaching bodhicitta. I hear about bodhicitta. In a way, it's kind of daunting. Exchange yourself for all sentient beings. You know, totally sacrifice your own well-being. Develop great compassion, great loving kindness. Become a bodhisattva. And we hear that, you know, some of us heard this teaching like, oh, man, I'm not ready for that. You know, can I try something a bit lower? And Gishin Daiki's response was, you could die any day. Do you really want to die? You really want to die without having even spent one day practicing bodhicitta? You know, boy, that was good, good advice. So even if you're really flaky, really superficial, just barely even getting the scent of it, better get the scent than nothing at all. And that's for bodhicitta. And likewise with Pashana. The first day you hear it, you should practice it. Yeah, to the best of your ability. Yeah. So this was core instructions I received from Geshe Rapten a long time ago, more than 30 years ago. He's so grounded. Geshe Rapten. Geshe was spiritual friend, accomplished scholar. But Rapten, very firm. Oh, Anila and I knew him. Boy, was he well named. He sat like a mountain. Aro! Vejada! Tough, tough as nails. Incredibly good heart. But boy, he was very firm. Boy. If you ever think of kind of Mickey Mouse person, he's way over there. <laughs> he's just way on the opposite end of the pole of Mickey Mouse. Very firm. And so with that firmness, that groundedness, and he was a consummate scholar and then spent six years in intensive retreat, and then simply out of his devotion to his guru and out of compassion, then he came out of retreat, devoted the rest of his life, so much like a Tisha in a way, sacrificing what he really loved to do out of sheer altruism, and came to the West and lived the rest of his life in the West, teaching. Whereas what he loved to do was he had this little Neanderthal hut up above Danzala, living there, incredibly simple. But that's what he loved to do. But he came out for the sake of other sentient beings. So what did he say? He said, we have this whole range of practices, the most foundational development of refuge, of bodhicitta, renunciation, and so forth, and then all the way up, stage of generation, stage of completion, six yogas and naropa, kala chakra, and all the way up. And he said, all right, it's good to sow seeds on all of you. So he invited one great lama, oh, back in 1978, to give his teachings on the six yogas and naropa. Incredible teachings. 
He said, you're not ready for those. You get the imprints now. You're not ready to practice that. Go back. But what he did say was, sow the seeds. So this pertains to your question, Tracy. And that is, sow the seeds. If you receive tantric empowerment, number one, only go if you really have faith and you'd really like to do the practice. But go ahead, but let about, he said, roughly something like 80% of your practice from day to day to day, let 80% of the practice be where you live, where you are, that it really helps attenuate your own mental afflictions, cultivate virtue, helps you in ways you know about, that it really purifies your mind. Let about 80% be focused on practices that are at your level where they really help. Not blind faith, it's not just future lives and all that kind of jazz. All it has that place, but let it be appropriate to where you are, and then that will gradually move. If you're really laying that foundation, like building a pyramid, then good, focus there on where you are, establish a foundation, then you'll have something, and then you move on from that. But in the meantime, 20%, go ahead and engage in these more advanced practices, Vipassana, state regeneration, uh, elegant height, you know, very very sophisticated sadhanas, and so forth and so on. Yeah, sow those seeds for the future. So do think long-term, but focus primarily on where you are now and let your practice engage with your life right now. Right? And so in that regard, full-fledged Vipassana practice, unless you've achieved shamatha, you're not fully accomplished, you're not fully prepared for that. You know, I mean, that's really, there is a foundation there, and it's shamatha and then Vipassana. But don't wait. Don't wait. And that is, so big emphasis, four measurables, refuge, you know, shamatha, lojo, mind training, Lamrian, the many, many practices that are right where we live, really transform. Every interaction we have with other beings, our lives, our minds, and so forth, 80% there. And then, 20% into Vipassana. If you've received tantric empowerment, stage of generation, maybe even a taste of stage of completion. Dzogchen, sure, why not? Do as much as you can. Some. Sow those seeds. So that's what he said. And then, years later, in the 1990s, when I was training quite intensively with Gyatrodhambachi, serving as his interpreter, translating texts under his guidance. Uh, he taught us one marvelous text. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It's called Natural Liberation. You've heard of it. He taught it. I translated it. Translated his commentary. And it goes through the entire path. Six bardos from the preliminary practices, developing renunciation, purification, then shamatha, vipassana, dream yoga, right on through all the six bardos, all the way to, uh, to uh, direct crossing over in the rainbow body. Everything's there in one text, the whole path. And so I asked, I asked Gautam Bhutti now, in the 1990s, Rinpoche, you know, there are a lot of really advanced practices here. Uh, should we just wait on those and you know focus on those where we really feel I can really do this, you know, but I haven't achieved it yet? Shall I just focus on those until I've achieved them? Or what about all these more advanced practices? He said, No, no, no. Touch the more advanced ones. Touch them. You know, get familiar with them. Focus where you are, but do touch them. So when you come to them, you'll be more and more familiar. So he said exactly the same thing, Gishrat. One is a quintessential Nyingma Lama. The other one is archetypal Gulupa Lama. Both of them incredibly, wonderfully non-sectarian. Really non-sectarian. But one is Gulupa, for sure. Oh, ask Gishrat, what, what track? Gulupa Yinda. So that's that. Don't wait. If so, how can what get started? Well, you just start. Whatever instructions you received, practice them. Very simple. Oh yeah. 
So here's one that I'm going to wait until tomorrow because I think Laura's not come back. I think she's... Laura's here? I just don't see her. No, I didn't think so. No. So one from Laura will wait until tomorrow. Olaso, you said in very, very advanced stages of shamatha when one is isolated for a very long time, mastering the non-thinking training in such stillness one breathes only occasionally. I don't recall saying that. Like, you know, every half an hour or so? I, I don't recall having said that. Um... Don't think so. No, the breathing, it doesn't like, you know, you stop for five minutes and then, and then go. Not like that. It just gets subtler and subtler and subtler. Now achieve the fourth jhana, and then it stops altogether. But that, along the trajectory of the first jhana, second, third, fourth jhana, it's like a damped sine wave. It's very subtle already when you achieve shamatha. But there is breathing. But then from there, it's like a damped sine wave. So here's an undamped sine wave, up and down, up and down. But a damp sine wave, the amplitude just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you're flatlined, breathing. That's the fourth jhana. But until then, it's not just once in a while. It should be regular. What are compassion, equanimity, loving kindness, and sympathetic joy good for then? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's kind of a tough one to answer. <laughs> when you, when, if you're only breathing occasionally, I would say it do, do it more than occasionally. I would say do it regularly. It's a good habit. And the <laughs> four rituals are good at any time, at any time whatsoever. They're good for you because they're the heart of the practice. Are Vipassana and or Dzogchen good to shape versus transform us into Buddhas. Uh, Dzogchen, really in terms of the, the standard and I think most meaningful trans, uh, terminology used, is not a matter of so much shaping or transforming us into Buddhas, but rather realizing that your nature has always been Buddha. Uh, I was listening several days ago to Yang Dhanabuchi's comments in this regard and said this is a distinctive feature of Dzogchen. And that is that the qualities of Buddhahood, of the Buddha mind, are not ones that you'll achieve one day. They are ones you already have completely and perfectly now. They are simply veiled. It's not a matter of shaping. It's a matter of discovering what's already there. If you take a developmental approach, thinking Buddha nature is something you have and it is your capacity for achieving enlightenment, then from that developmental approach, then yes, you shape, transform yourself to become Buddha. Now, the synthesis of this was brilliantly expressed by His Holiness Dalai Lama, and he was citing one great Sakya Lama. Uh, I think it was in the teachings on Dzogchen he gave many years ago in San Jose. It was in one of his two books. I think it was there. Uh, he has two books on Dzogchen. The second one is especially outstanding, Mind in Comfort and Ease. But His Holiness commented on this because it looks really like kind of sectarian rivalry. What's the real nature of the Buddha nature? Is it something you have? Is it a capacity? Do you have Buddha qualities? Or are they really to be developed because you don't have them? Or do you already have the Buddha qualities and they're simply to be unveiled? It looks like, you know, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. These are really different views. And of course they are different views. Uh, Tsongkhapa, Sakyapandita, to, to a large extent the Kagyu tradition, Gampopa and so forth, are expressing the developmental approach. Not 100%, but pretty strongly. And that is Buddha nature is something that is a capacity, a potential, and you develop it, you refine it, you purify it, and then you transform that into Buddhahood. But you you then develop qualities, realize qualities you don't have, but then you do have them. 
Dzogchen, straight Dzogchen, all of those qualities are already present. But you have to unveil them because they are obscured. So those look like two very different views. And His Holiness then clarified this, citing one Sakya master, I don't remember his name, saying that these are utterly complementary views and they're both correct. And that it's Tsongkhapa, for example, is expressing the nature of the path from the perspective of a sentient being. Now, it's not saying that he was limited in his own capacity. He was simply out of his compassion saying, if you view the nature of the path from the perspective of a sentient being, I am a deluded sentient being, this is what it looks like. And there you are. You have very heavy mental afflictions, all kinds of obscurations. You have a few little virtues. You don't have any Buddha qualities at all, other perfections. But you do have the capacity, and you develop that capacity. Develop, develop, develop. And then from that perspective of a sentient being, eventually become a better, better, better sentient being, until you stop being a sentient being and you become a Buddha. So that's one view, and that's an authentic and accurate view from the perspective of a sentient being. Longjian Rapchamba, on the other hand, is speaking and, and describing the path from the perspective of Buddha mind, and from that perspective, your nature is already Buddha. Your mind is already Buddha mind. And all there is to do is to realize who you already are, because your mind right now is nothing other than Rigpa, the expressions of Rigpa. All of the qualities of enlightened mind, the compassion, the power, the wisdom, all of that are already there. From the Buddhist perspective, that's it. And all you need to do is wake up to who you already are. They're not diametrically opposed, they're not in collision, they're not in debate, they're complementary. They're in the same reality from two different perspectives. So, thus spoke His Holiness Dalai Lama. I heard somebody say that once that once you achieve shamatha up to the ninth stage, the difference between the Buddhist teachings and Buddhism turn as clear as the awareness mechanisms in shamatha meditation, well illustrated by the dolphin jumping out of the quiet pond. For those who do the awareness of awareness practice after having really developed one's introspection, introspective and attentional skills. So once you've gotten to the ninth stage, the difference between Buddhist teachings and Buddhism turns as clear as awareness mechanism. I don't know the difference between Buddhist teachings and Buddhism. What do we know about the Buddhist teachings apart from Buddhism? What do we know about Buddhist teachings except for as it's been transmitted to us by way of the Sangha? Well, if you're a Dujum Lingma, maybe you have direct access to the mind of Samadabhadra. But apart from that, if we're talking about historical Buddha, what on earth do we know about the Buddhist teachings apart from the recordings of them by the great Sangha, the great Arhats, who are contemporaries of the Buddha, who in this council, very, very shortly following the Buddha's passing away, they gathered a council with utmost reverence, utmost intelligence, tremendous memory, and they collected, they collated the Buddha's teachings, drawing in 500 arhats, and then they passed those on orally for some, quite a few years, and then eventually found it was useful to write them down. Uh, one can discount those people and discount all the later generations of great yogis, contemplatives, Generations, hundred generations, one hundred generations more or less. One can discount the whole history of Buddhism and all the great beings, the adepts, scholars, for the last twenty-five hundred years and think one has a better idea. Oh, I know what the Buddha really said. If there's such a thing as the perfection of pomposity, I think that's it. It's so absurd that if you're a Buddha, okay, but if you're not, it doesn't earn my respect. So, 
Do people sometimes misinterpret the teachings? Sure. Do they sometimes project upon it? Sure. But anyone who has deep reverence for the Buddhist teachings, we're trying to do that as little as possible. And so, Chelak Mepa. Chelak Mepa is called in Tibetan. When you are transmitting, when you're passing on the teachings of the Buddha, which you've received from your own teachers. In my case, about 60 teachers, mostly from the Tibetan tradition, all schools. Chelak Mepa. Try to, whatever teaching passing you're passing on, you're transmitting, try to do so without leaving out anything important. That's the first thing. That's chepa mepa, hlap mepa, hlapa mepa. Is don't add your own garbage. Don't clutter it up with your own junk. Try to transmit it as clearly and accurately as you can. Of course, the challenge then is to not just be a tape recorder or just read text that you've heard, but bring it into the Contemporary setting. Make it utterly contemporary and utterly traditional. So I think a wonderful example of that is, is Hosonen's Dalai Lama. He does that par excellence. Consummate scholar. Extraordinary scholar. Especially of Galupa and Nyingma. But of course he's very familiar with Kagyu Nyingma and Kagyu and Sakya's teachings as well. But boy does he know his, his material. Superb scholar. He really knows the tradition. And there he is bringing it in, inter, in interface with modern physics, modern neuroscience, philosophy, relating to Christianity and Islam and Judaism, relating it to current geopolitical situation, to economics, to environmental. He's doing that. So he's a good example. He's one I wish to emulate in a very small way, like the match holding up to the sun. So there we are. Can we experiment? No, can we, I think experiment, the problem is experience. Can we experience substrate consciousness only in moments such as falling asleep or dying or also during meditation when our thinking mind is at rest? So I think that's a very good question and I think I answered it earlier on. You, uh, I would say yes, you can. It's veiled, but you can decrease the density of veils. You also said that it doesn't, it doesn't know anything. Oh no, I didn't say that. How can it be if its nature is also clarity? It's not the case that substrate consciousness doesn't know anything. When substrate consciousness slips into or dissolves into the substrate, as when you are comatose, when you're experiencing general anesthesia, um, you don't know anything. You don't. You just don't know anything at all, right? You have not become unconscious like I would say this piece of paper is unconscious. I would say this piece of paper has utterly zero consciousness. It's not conscious even a tiny bit. Zero. And it will never become conscious. You can wave a wand over it, you can breathe into it, you can, you can put it inside your brain, if you really want paper inside your brain. You know, but there's just nothing you can do to make paper conscious. Nothing. Ever. But likewise, when there is a flow of consciousness, there's nothing you can do to it to make it zero consciousness. Any more than you take matter and have that turned into nothing, or energy, have that turned into nothing. Space, turn it into non-space, time into non-time. It's just one of those core ingredients of reality, and you can transform it in all kinds of ways. Space-time can shift and change, matter changes, energy changes, transforms in all different kinds of ways. So does consciousness. One thing you can't do with consciousness is make it become non-conscious. So when you're comatose, when you're dead, when you're deep asleep and so forth, consciousness, your substrate consciousness slips into the substrate. It's like turning off the stove and there's just the pilot light, but you can't even see the light. But it's not zero. It's just gone very dormant. It's subliminal. So the substrate is a state of not knowing. Substrate consciousness by nature is luminous. 
But it does get veiled. It does get veiled. And that's why we can be deep asleep and not know it. Or, just generally speaking, why do we become unconscious at all? Because the substrate consciousness, the light of the substrate consciousness, gets obscured by dullness and so forth. So, could you explain the term resistance as used in the, fra- in the, in the phrase resistance to samadhi, one of the problems that persists up through stage five? Sure, why not? Resistance is easy. And you'll notice at stage five, it's ambivalent. Because you're taking some satisfaction in samadhi. You go through those bullet points. And I'm drawing from really classic sources from people of the chief shamatha, generations of them. And so, on the one hand, at stage five, you're taking some satisfaction in samadhi. Stage five, you've gotten over the hump. One of the big humps is going from stage four to stage five. That's a hump. It's famous for centuries. There's a hump to get over. Because when you, when you try to counteract the laxity, you start to get losing the stability. But then when you settle back in the stability, of course, laxity comes right back in. When you try to counteract the laxity and you start losing stability, so kind of irritating, frustrating. But you get over it if you persist and you're skillful and you achieve stage five. And then really, you can really say you're no longer a novice in the practice of shamatha. Stage five is really not bad. Probably meditate for an hour or two hours at a stretch, maintaining total absence of coarse excitation. Stage five, absence of coarse laxity. So there's a certain symmetry there, a certain balance. Absence of coarse excitation, absence of coarse laxity. Nice and even. So you take some satisfaction. You say, hey, you know, this works. These descriptions of these nine stages, so far so good. The fifth stage really is there. Right? And people are finding that out nowadays. This is not ancient history. Not that hard. It's not that hard. But you do need a conducive environment and continuity. But resistance. Resistance. And all I can say is there it is. At that stage, it's one of the classic characteristics is that of one of ambivalence. <coughs> of ambivalence. And that is some of you even here in these last three weeks, especially over the last week. So, especially those practicing settling the mind. Settling in, settling in. And especially when the really good sessions take place. I feel like, whoa, really settling down. Then finally some really creepy stuff comes up. Emotions you really not have. You'd really rather not have. Memory is not all that pleasant. It may start triggering dreams you'd really like not to have. And then one of the most common ones is fear. Just kind of like a general anxiety disorder. Like, like kind of like, where is this going to go? I'm not sure this is going to be so much fun. This could get really creepy. And the thing is, stage six is coming. Stage six is coming. And stage six is just notoriously really creepy. Really yucky. Dredging deep, deep into the swamp of your mind, bringing out old corpses and dead frogs and fossilized dog crap. That you never thought was there. You thought this was for other people, and it turns out come out of your own mind. And you may get some on stage five some premonitions of coming attractions that are really not attractive at all. And you're kind of thinking, I like this, but I'm not sure this is going to be much fun. This may get really nasty soon. I think it will. I've heard about stage six. It doesn't sound like a piece of cake. 
Maybe I could just hang out here for a while. And that's where the resistance comes from. <laughs> Is that resistance to practice as in being reluctant to sit down? Well, if sit down gets you deeper into samadhi, yep. Is it used to in the sense that the attention resists staying on the object? It's just an overall resistance to wanting to go deeper. It's called fear of the unknown. And that fear, the fear that arises even in the first three weeks, can easily arise in the first eight weeks. Oh, well, when you consider that, when you come to the end of the line on the Shamatha Express, and your mind has dissolved, your whole sense of ordinary, your ordinary sense of identity has dissolved, your sense of personal history has dissolved, your sense of having any future has dissolved, your mind has dissolved, you've lost it, and you've dissolved into the substrate consciousness, you come to the end of the line, and that's also the end of the line of the trajectory of living. Substrate consciousness. So you have kind of a sense that when I achieve shamatha, it's going to be something like being dead, and I'm not quite sure I want that. Because I might be annihilated, and if I get annihilated, I'm not sure, once you're annihilated, how do you come back? And I kind of like being me. Like, you know, the devil, better the devil you do know than when you don't. And so... The practice of shamatha, especially when it goes well, can give some fear that you might actually succeed. <laughs> and you're succeeding by going into a place you haven't been before. You're going into the unknown. And it does entail the cessation of the familiar. You're familiar. You're going into a place that's unfamiliar. If you've been de dead before, you forgot what it's like. So that's why fear arises. But then you get used to it. You let that fear come up, you observe it, and you slip more and more deeply into the substrate consciousness. And then you find being dead isn't that bad. Losing your mind is not that bad. When you're losing it with clarity, actually there's no downside. That is, when you slip into that vacuity, there's nothing bad down there. There's nothing unpleasant. There's nothing dangerous. Nothing destructive. And nothing vanishes that truly existed in the first place. So, that's why. Our experiences of the innate clear mind, clear mind of death and Rikpa equivalent. Uh, I will then speak from His Holiness' perspective, His Holiness as a consummate Galupa scholar, and having very deep training and experience of Dzogchen, says that Rikpa, and the innate mind of Rikpa from the Dzogchen tradition, the innate mind of clear light from the new translation schools, they're referring to the same thing. And they're both referring to that dimension of consciousness that naturally manifests, but is usually not ascertained, following the dark near attainment and the dying process. So, yes, the words are referring to the same reality. And we'll save this one for tomorrow. We have some minutes left. Anything coming up from the floor? Yes, we'll start with Jan. And if we could have the microphone, that would be nifty. Um, I have a question about the expression taking appearances and mind as the path. Appearances and awareness as the path. Okay. Namrik lamdu kyarwa. Okay. Um, because um, you, said, you mentioned that According to Dujong Lingpa, he made it synonymous with the practice of settling the mind in the natural state. He didn't say that. He okay. didn't say that. But he did call this settling the mind, he did call this taking uh, appearances and awareness as a path. 
and its description of it is for all practical purposes, and I mean all of them, identical to what another contemporary Dzogchen master, that is contemporary to him, Leve Blingba, called Seven in the Minus Naturals. It's exactly the same practice. So uh, even though he didn't say, oh, my teachings are the same one as Leve Blingba, you look at the content, you look at the outcome, they're referring to and they're from the same tradition. So then I would say, yes, I think it's a very, very reasonable conclusion to say these two terms are equivalent. Go ahead. Um, because uh, like throughout the six bardos, there are a lot of different levels of mind that are ascertaining different levels of appearances or experiences. And so I'm wondering, in particular, the expression appearance, because even our, uh, like for example, both today and yesterday, you mentioned that you know, even our sensory perceptions, uh, like of the five senses, even that is mental at several levels. So I'm wondering about the term appearances as opposed yeah. to why, why do they use that term as opposed to just thoughts? Or You'd have to ask him. Um, labels are always open, wide open to all kinds of interpretations. Suddenly in the mind is a natural state. What on earth does that mean? Shama to focus on the mind? What does that mean? Um, but we see as soon as he describes it, he doesn't make any references to looking at visual or auditory or tactile. And then, when you see how it plays out, he's given, from my very limited reading, he's given the clearest, and I want to turn to Anila for this one, from my very limited reading, he's given the clearest account of the substrate consciousness, the substrate that I've seen, hands down, anywhere else. I've not seen anything to compare to his description of the substrate, the substrate consciousness, how they relate, what's it like to dissolve into it. And it just strikes me as just 100% experiential. I see no scholarship here, I see no philosophy here, this was like, here's a man who's done it, this is what it's like. And oh, by the way, along the trajectory, here's all the kind of stuff that can arise. Here's a nice sampling of two pages of these wonderful signs of progress. You know, the nyam. Um, I've not seen anywhere else anything so clear of how the mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness and all, how all appearances dissolve into substrate. Anali, you're much more knowledgeable than I. Have you seen anything? But you certainly are. You've received so many teachings that I've not received. But from the many teachings and, and, and texts you've encountered, have you seen anything like it? Okay. And Anna, she's, she can be as modest as she likes, but it's simply a flat-out fact. She's much more knowledgeable in this regard than I am. Um, and so, so that's not the absolute word any more than mine is. Andre, you've also received a lot of teachings. Have you, have you not also, yeah? It really is extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. So, if we can take him as authoritative, and I, I do, and that's just flat out. I take him as authoritative. I won't say he's the highest authority. I don't even know what that would mean. But are his teachings authentic? And do they work? That one I have no doubt. I really don't have any doubt at all. And are they appropriate for our times? Oh man, my heart sings. My heart sings. Once to sing, you know, wow. Buddha's Messiah. Whatever. So, in that regard then, if we take him seriously, I say Buddhism is just being silly. Like Handel's Messiah is one of the great majestic pieces I've written of all time. Well, that, but in the Buddhist mode. That's all I meant. Silly. So, it, but if we take his teachings on how the mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, how all appearances dissolve into the substrate, then it's just kind of obvious. If you're still attending to sensory appearances, how on earth would they ever dissolve? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so, therefore, just by straight, I think, crystal clear logic. Number one, he makes no reference to looking at all kinds of appearances. 
he does make reference to observing thoughts. But this word in the writings, in Dzogchen writings, we'll find this word namdo, namdo, vikalpa in Sanskrit. It's often used quite generically. It's not just discursive thoughts, but all the stuff that arises. And we find something very similar in the writings of William James, Principles for Psychology. He'll sometimes also just use the word thought. Thought is covering a whole range of phenomena, and not just metal chit-chat. So as William James uses the word thought quite generically, so does Dujam Ningba, so do many others say, okay, now observe Namdo, Bikalba, just all the stuff that comes up. So I think that that's when he's referring to appearances, he's referring to appearances in the one domain in which your mind will dissolve. Because that's where you're attending. And the more unified your mind becomes, single-pointedly focused there, then just naturally, since you're not feeding the other five fields, it's almost like five, five fields and they'll just dry up and no crops will grow there. You're putting all your water into one field. Well, you're experiencing the other five fields will dry up. They'll just dissolve back into all your sense perceptions will dissolve into back into mental perception. All the sense fields, the visual field, mental, uh, auditory and so forth, they will dissolve back into the substrate, the purely mental field. That will be all that's left. But one, one brief comment about taking Nang Rik Lundu Kerawa, appearances and awareness as a path. And I think this really could be highlighted a bit more than I have in the past. It's very useful. Once again, the notion of Russian dolls, one doll being inside the doll, another, another, another. And that is just to recoup this a little bit, or recount it. And that is in mindfulness of breathing. If you're practicing correctly, you're not only maintaining mindfulness of the breath, you're maintaining introspective awareness of what's going on in mind. And that includes your rising of thoughts. If you're not aware of them, you don't know when distraction is coming in, right? Got to. And so you are attending now to just one sense field, the tactile. You're ignoring the other four. While focusing with mindfulness there, introspection is picking up the space of the mind, the space of what's happening in the mind, letting you know whether your awareness is becoming dull. Well, that's like, because you're focusing on the space of the mind and its contents. Letting you know whether there's a lot of chit-chat, noise, and so forth. That's focusing on the mind and its contents, right? But of course, as you're practicing there, clearly, discerningly, are you aware of the reality of your meditating? Are you aware of being aware of the breath? Yeah. In other words, they're all there. And then we, so that's the biggest Russian doll, right? Then we throw out the biggest doll. We throw out, we discard the shell of attending to tactile sensations. So now the mindfulness is directed only at the space of the mind. Once again, introspection is monitoring there in that same field, right? But as now, we just did it. When you're settling the mind into its natural state, attending to the space and whatever's arising in it, are you aware that you're aware of them. Are you aware of being aware? Yeah, how could you not be? So you're aware of the appearances arising in the space of the mind, but you're also aware of being aware. Right? It goes with the territory. It's implicit, but it's part of the package. right? And so there's the second Russian doll. And then we throw out that husk of the space of the mind and its contents. And we just go back to the littlest Russian doll. And that is just awareness of being aware. So, in that way, then, this practice settling the mind in its natural state is indeed taking the appearances of the mind and the awareness of it as a path. Until the appearances of the mind vanish, and all you're left with is the substrate and your substrate consciousness. Okay? Good. Oh, yeah.
anything else coming up. You can always surprise them over in the dining hall and show up early. Yes, over to Morgan. Yeah, I was wondering at one point you said that there were physiological reasons for keeping your eyes open in the second two types of meditation. Could you maybe talk about what those are? Yeah, not much, but a little bit. You can read about them in various Dzogchen texts, but one that is in the public domain, because Gautrakamacha specifically said it could be, um, and that is natural liberation. Natural liberation. And it's after the section on shamatha and Vipassana, it's over there in the section on going into Dzogchen, where the reference is to the, it's called the hollow crystal kati channel. Hollow crystal kati channel. Uh, it's a channel, it's a nadi. You don't find it in the standard, like you don't find, I've never seen any reference to this. The, the kati channel, K-A-T-I, the kati channel, hollow crystal kati channel. Never seen any reference to that in the uh, new translation tantras, stage regeneration. It may be there, but I kind of doubt it. I don't think so. Um, but it does come up all over Dzogchen. It's not just one school or one teacher and so forth. It's there in the teachings of Padmasambhava. I'm translating a text right now uh, from Levaplingba. It's there very clearly. He refers to it. Uh, it comes up very explicitly in the teachings on the direct crossing over. But it comes up before then as well. And what this hollow crystal kati channel is, number one, do you ever get it with an x-ray or EEG or anything like that? Not likely. Like maybe zero chance. Um, might you experience it subjectively? If you have very, very refined mental mental perception, seems so. And what it is, it's a channel. It's rooted in your heart chakra. And it comes up from the heart chakra. It's inside the body. It's It's... Physical in the sense that it is located in physical space. It's not material in the sense that it's not composed of atoms. Okay? And that shouldn't sound too mysterious because that's a totally accepted distinction in modern physics. For example, an electromagnetic field is physical. It's located in space. It travels at the speed of, the speed of light. It travels through empty space. So it's physical. It's measurable. You can measure it with physical instruments. Uh, but an electromagnetic field doesn't have one single atom in it. It's not made of material stuff. It travels through empty space. So it's physical, but it's not, it's not material in the sense of being composed of particles of matter. So, categories there. The zero-point energy of the vacuum, of the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum, it's physical, it's been measured. It was measured in 1950-something by Casimir, a Dutch physicist, a lot of my dissertation, my thesis at Amherst was on his research and the whole theory of zero-point energy. And it's physical. Certainly not composed of it. It's not material. There's no, there's no matter in it. It's, what's that? Acupuncture is another one. It's chi, of course. It's physical. I mean, you can, oh, oh, I, I, I met nine times with one Qigong master. He was a real deal. And he could direct his chi. Like other people direct a flashlight. He could direct his chi, and it was obvious. He worked on my body nine times. Man, oh man, did he direct his chi. Physical, really physical, intense. No matter in it at all. So there are many examples. Chinese medicine, Tibetan medicine, Vajrayana, modern physics. So this hollow crystal kati channel, it's physical, it's not mental. comes up, it bifurcates, and they say, like the little antenna of a snail. 
That's the example given. Like, and it comes up, comes around, curls, it bifurcates, and comes up behind the ears, and then it comes out of the eyes. Behind the ears, out of the eyes. So, okay. and so it's stemming from mental awareness. But its light is shining in the visual field. That is, it's shining through the eyes. So, our practice is in the direct crossing over. I, I will give extremely, almost no detail. But there are core practices in direct crossing over for which your eyes must be open. If you don't, you're just not doing the practice. But are you seeing what needs to be seen with visual perception? I would say not. You're seeing with mental perception. But your eyes have to be open. And so there's precedent for that. And so one, this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, it's, it's the one more than any other shamatha practice, handpicked by the great Mahamudra and Dzogchen masters, as this is, this is the one, this is really a good one. The awareness of awareness, absolutely, definitely yes. Padmasambhava teaches it, many other great masters. But one that crops up more frequently than any other. As preparation for Dzogchen practice, stage regenerate, stage, oh, I'm sorry, tekjutjutya, breakthrough and direct crossing over. The shamatha practice more emphasized than any other one, more commonly, is settling the mind in its natural state. So you're already getting the hang of focusing entirely mentally, but with your eyes open. Then when you go from that to tekjut, eyes are open, Turtgel, eyes are open. By then, you're, it's an old, you're, you're old hat. You're already accustomed to it. Oh, yeah, I already, I can practice with my eyes open. I did that. I achieved shamatha that way. <laughs> Piece of cake. Okay? Something like that. Oh, that's so. Oh, that's so. Good. So, dear Laura, is receiving some mental, uh, some medical, not mental, a bit of medical treatment. It's a little bit something wrong with the body. I spoke with her this afternoon. We can all wish her well. Didn't seem very serious, but serious enough. She needed some medical a medical treatment, so hopefully she get just what she need. In the meantime, enjoy your day, your evening. I see you tomorrow morning.